Paul to Titus. It's over near the end of the New Testament. We're in a series on this particular um, letter. We're calling it Healthy Church. So while you're looking, let me make a couple of, uh, of announcements. One is we will be launching, as you have read, heard 21 days of prayer. That's at the end of this month. The way that will work is I've chosen 8 o'clock on Thursday morning to be my hour of prayer. So when we did this before back in uh, January, Kathy Livingston texted me. Um, Kathy, you remember doing that? You texted me at, you had 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. And then I went into the next room and told my wife, who had the next hour, it's your turn. And right on from, uh, from 5 in the morning until 11 at night. So we want to fill up a complete week and if you're willing to be a part of a united effort in our church to seek God's presence and His help, especially in light of the pastor search, would you sign up? You can do that afterwards. You can just do it online. Um, but go ahead and get signed up. Choose the time that works for you. And if somebody else is there, that's all right if several people are praying at that time. So thank you. Also, I talked about it, and you received some note about a mission trip to Barcelona. We postponed that until spring break with Letourneau. So hopefully some of the Loterno folks will be able to go on that mission trip with us to Barcelona, Spain, where we'll we be doing, among other things, street evangelism with Muslim people who are dearly loved by God. I want to do a survey. If you're below the age of 15, would you stand? A lot of our kids are on, all right, a lot of them are on retreat. All right, thank you. If you're from 15 to 25, would you stand? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. If you're between 25 and 35, would you stand? You guys need to get out and invite some folks. Join us. If you're between 35 and 45, would you stand? All right. Good. If you're between 45 and 55, stand. All right, thank you. If you're between 55 and 65, would you stand? There's a hand raised in the back, <laughs> celebrating. Others of you are living in denial. <laughs> if you're between 65 and 75, would you stand? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. If you're over 75, would you stand? All right. Ah. Thank you. Be seated. We are, an, we are a multi-generational church, three, maybe four different generations. And I have good news for you today. What Paul is going to say to Titus in chapter 2 will address every single one of you. Man, men, women, retired folks, uh, young people, singles, married, employed or not employed, you are going to hear a specific directed word to you in the passage that we are going to read. So Titus chapter 2, I want to read the first, well, all 15 verses of this chapter, but our focus is going to be verses 1 through 10. And would you stand once more? I know you've been standing and up and down, but go ahead and let's stand as I read God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself to be in all respects a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the Apostle Paul is writing this to Titus, and they're two very different people. Paul is an older Jew. Titus is a younger Greek. And Paul has been discipling Titus. And as he begins to see some maturity and some abilities rise up in Titus, he begins to insert him into some uh, pretty delicate situations, like this situation in Crete. Um, Crete is an island located, last week I said it was located in the Caribbean, and several of you corrected me about that. My wife turned to me and she said, do you know something I don't? And, no, it's in the Mediterranean. <laughs> and Paul told him in chapter 1, he said, I want you to go put things in order, get those churches healthy. They're struggling. They're, they're in a mess. Entire families are being torn up because of some things happening. I want you to go in and just kind of straighten things out and get them healthy. And here in chapter 2, verse 1, he summarizes three of the marks of a healthy church. This is kind of a review. Number one is sound doctrine. He says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And literally it says the or the sound doctrine. So there is a body of truth. A healthy church has a statement of faith that's healthy. That word sound means healthy. In verse 10, he talks about the doctrine of God our Savior. And if it raises a question, what does it mean to have a sound set of doctrinal statements? He tells us that in verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. It's about the grace of God. It's the gospel of the grace of God. And so he says, that's what makes a church healthy, a constant feeding on the truth and the grace of God. So Titus, I want you to urge these churches and the leaders in these churches to teach the gospel of grace. The second thing is qualified leaders. He says, you, Titus, you're a leader. You go in those churches and you raise up some leaders who can oversee the spiritual life and ministry in those churches. Why would churches need 
qualified leaders. Well, he says in chapter 1, because of the chaos, it's being caused by some false teachers. And the way you correct false teaching is through solid teaching done by those who are leaders in, in the church. Here's the third, cate- a third category, the third mark of a healthy church. It's in verse 1 as well. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. See, people are living in an area in Crete that's just infested with all kinds of crazy ideas and philosophies, much like the time that we live in today. So he says, Titus, teach the people, help them to, to differentiate between what is of God and what is of man, what is truth and what is error. And sometimes I think we minimize the, the impact of coaches and teachers. My sixth grade Sunday school teacher was Charlie Farmer. He was a Marine sniper in World War II. He was also a martial arts expert, wore a crew cut and shoot cigars. Taught us, eighth, taught us sixth grade boys how to memorize scripture, how to shoot a Colt 1911, how to kill someone in seven seconds. We loved him. We loved him. His teaching was not profound, but he poured his life into us. He, and, and we caught as much as we're taught truth from Charlie Farmer. I visited him. He was so patient with us. You know, six-year-old, sixth-grade boys, they're all about potty humor and all kinds of, and he was so patient. I visited him a few days before he died, and Charlie looked up at me, and he said, Sam Shaw, do you still, rem- this, do you still remember John three sixteen? I said, yes, sir, Charlie, I do. His life, as much as his teaching, shaped my mind shaped my thinking. And that's what good teaching does. If, if good teaching does not shape you and form you, what Paul says in Galatians 4, till Christ is formed in you, you're going to be shaped, you're going to be formed by teaching that is part of our time, social media, all kinds of things that are, are happening. So the purpose of teaching is not just to fill our heads with a lot of Bible knowledge, although that is very important and that is good. It's to shape the way we think, shape the way we look at things. It's to produce Christ-likeness in us. Here's a fourth mark, and this is the one we want to talk about today, a fourth mark of a healthy church, and that is spiritually healthy disciples who are living godly lives. You see, there is a way, he says in verse 1, I want you to teach sound, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. There is a way that the gospel shapes the way that we live. I've been, there's an old English word that's used in some of the old translations, doctrine that is becoming, becoming. I've been told there are some fabrics that some of us should not wear that has stripes going in a certain direction because it accentuates what ought not to be accentuated. It's not becoming. Uh, I've I've heard it said, uh, that's a very becoming dress. It fits you. It's suitable to you. It corresponds to you. It's glamorous. It's beautiful. And he says, I want you to teach doctrine that in such a way uh, is becoming for the way that, that we live. Don't forget to train people that not only are they to believe, but we are to behave. Not only do we have a profession of faith, we have a performance of our faith. That belief leads to Christian, Christian belief leads to Christian behavior. And some of us read this and we go, this is awfully legalistic. 
It really is not. It's not legalistic. Paul is not saying, if you live like this, you'll be saved. If you live like this, you'll be a Christian. He's, what's, he's saying, because you are a Christian, I want you to live like this. In fact, in verse 11, he begins with four. Here's the reason why I want you to live like this. For or because of the grace of God. And so I just can't emphasize enough right here at the beginning, near the beginning. Christianity is not a list of to-dos, things that we have to do and work harder at. It's not a set of morals that we have to master. It's not a set of rituals that we have to adopt from start to finish the Christian life. It's a response to God's grace. It's a response to God's love because of what He has done for us. We live in a certain way. And it's not legalism because this is the way we show our love for Jesus. He said in Luke 6, 46, if you love me, you'll obey me. This is the way we demonstrate our love for him and it's one of the reasons he saves us. Verse 14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So what does healthy Christian living look like for different groups of people? Let's just kind of walk through this list that he gives. Older men. How old is old? Well, an older man is someone who's older than 71. I say that because I'm 70 and I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Someone said there are seven stages of man. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. And we're all heading in that, in that direction. We're all going to be, Lord willing, we're all going to be there. George Burns said tennis is a young man's game. Until you're 25, you play singles. From 25 to 35, you play doubles. He said, I won't tell you exactly how old I am, but when I play, there are 28 men on the court. <laughs> on my side of the net, he says. So, what does he say to older men? He says, if you want to be respected, then live a life worthy of respect. In essence, he says, act your age. Be mature. Older men are to be, he says, sober-minded, level-headed, dignified, mature, Someone said, you're only young once, but you can be immature your entire life. And Paul is saying, older men are to live a life that, is, that fits who they are, where they are, and it just requires discipline. So he says, be self-controlled. Have your passions under control. You say, well, I'm an older man, and that's not a problem for me. But it's amazing how many older men get into trouble in that regard. He says, sound in faith. You've gone through enough hills and valleys to know that you really can trust the Lord. You can look back over your life and you can see how He has guided you uh, through all kinds of circumstances. So you have firm confidence in the Lord. He says, sound in love. You know, some older people tend to become increasingly self-centered in their later years. They, they lose influence, they lose strength and ability, they get discouraged, and we begin to get cynical, which is always a, what happens when we get the focus on ourselves. But God's promises have not ceased to be true. God resurrected Jesus from the dead. God has a plan He is pursuing in this world, and He will not give up on it. So He says, Titus, I want you to remind the older men, they still have a lot of love to give. So encourage them to find some folks who just need support, who need a lot of love, and help them to understand they really can trust the Lord. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And it's a beautiful thing to see an older man serving the Lord. Steadfastness, he says, enduring, persevering through hard times. Tell them not to quit. 
Tell them to keep the faith. Tell them to keep their cool. Tell them just to keep on keeping on, to finish strong, stay in the game. And men, this is what you want to be. This ought to be a prayer list for you. Lord, make me this kind of man. I think of Caleb, 80 years old. They entered the promised land. He was one of the two spies who did not deny the power of God. And at 80 years old, he comes to Moses and he says, I want that hill country over there. And Moses said, there are giants over there. And Caleb at 80 years old says, I can handle it. I can handle it. I love the older men in our church. I love the encore ministry and what happens there. You know why God in his grace allows senior adults to have discount airline tickets? So you can make mission trips. This church has a wonderful heritage of mission trips, and you will again. One of the best mission trips I've ever been on was to Lima, Peru. We went with a group of senior adults. I loved it. They start work early in the morning by 4.30. They're finished. In a week, we launched a church in Lima, Peru on the side of a hill, and it was senior adults doing it. I just want to ask you, if you're a senior adult, do you have an up-to-date passport? So why would I need it? Unless you have that up-to-date, you're saying, I'm not available, Lord, to be used, at least overseas. So he says, senior, older men, he says, there is a way that reflects love for Jesus and exhibits and displays the gospel. Then he speaks to older women, and I have to be really careful here. Older women, likewise, in the same way, are to be reverent in behavior. And that word reverent, is a, it's a word that was used in the times of a priestess in a temple, like Anna, who saw the baby Jesus being brought into the temple. She spent her time in the temple worshiping, fasting, and praying. And he says, older women are not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Apparently in Crete, there were some older women with a lot of time on their hands, and they were going house to house, popping the cork on a wine bottle, talking about others, running people down, accusing them. And the more they drank, the more they talked. I think, I think we don't take sins of the tongue seriously enough. The word slanderer is the Greek word diabolos. We get our word devil or diabolic from that. When you're gossiping about people, you're acting like the devil, he says. By contrast, there are older women who are so sweet, they just seem more beautiful than even when they were, when they were young because their character is beautiful. It shines through because character is more beautiful than physical charms. Proverbs 31 30 says, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city of gate, at the city gate. So Paul says, tell the older women not to be slanderers, not to be enslaved by much wine, but to teach what is good. And that word teach, it's only used here, not only in the Greek New Testament, it's only used in all of Greek literature that we can find. It may be a word that Paul himself made up. And it has the idea not of a classroom teaching or a lecture, but of a conversation you have over the backyard fence. An informal kind of in-the-home kind of, of teaching that goes on, one-on-one. -on -one. And the picture is of an older woman teaching, as he says, the younger women. Here's what I did when I was young. Here's how I prepared meals for the entire week. 
an older woman who takes the initiative and she invests in younger women. So then he moves to younger women, probably newly married women. He says, so the older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, living at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Can anyone pick out a few controversial phrases in that? Why does Paul tell them to love their husbands? Why would he need to tell them to love their husbands? Every woman, married woman in this room knows why. Because sometimes we knuckleheads are really hard to love. We really are. How do you love someone who leaves before breakfast, comes home after dinner, and falls asleep before bedtime on the couch? How do you love someone who all, all they can talk about and think about is himself? You say, well, yeah, how do you do that? Well, it takes training. And we all could use some help in practical ways of learning to love. And he says, love your children. Why would, he tell, why would he need to tell a younger woman to love her children? Did any of you have children that had colic? Our children had colic for a year. They just cried all the time. And Ruthie would get to the point, she'd say, I, I, I love my kids. I'm pulling my hair out. This is, I need help here. I need help in how do I deal with a wayward child? How do I deal with a rebellious child? And Paul says, Titus, you and the elders can't do all the teaching. Get some older women to help you. Some older women who can help the younger women who could be on call. Hey, could you come over and help me? My kids are driving me nuts or I need help. How did you do this? What can I do here? The point is, as a church, we're a burden-bearing community. We're here for one another. Doesn't mean you're the total drama queen. It's all about you. But we're here for one another. He says, teach them to be self-controlled. There it is again. You'll see it again. Self-controlled and pure. Setting their mind on things above. Workers at home. Does that mean a woman should not work outside the home? I don't think it means that at all. If you read Proverbs 31, here's a woman who is an entrepreneur who's adding to the family's income She's working, she has a business, she's selling land, she's making clothing, but her foremost thought is her home. Her heart is in her home. She's a manager of her home. I think that's what Paul is saying. Help the younger women to see themselves as managers in their home. And I just want to say to those of you who are moms and wives, bless you. I applaud you. I bless you. No one can do what you do. No one can replace you. Think of the weight that you carry. Your days are long. Your years are short. And what you are doing, you are investing in eternity in raising your families and managing your home. Tony Evans says, whoever oversees the family owns the future. I know there are women here who want to get married for some reason or not. I know that there are families here, couples here they'd love to have children and for some reason they cannot i just want to say to you you're not alone we want to be a we want to be a family that stands with you and beside you but we may may we also be a church that upholds the gift of children he says be kind teach those younger women to be kind you know it's possible to be busy as a bee and mean as a hornet isn't it martha she is a manager of the home. She has got it down pat, but she's irritable. She's resentful when everyone doesn't cooperate and do it 
her way. And guys, I think we could help our wives and our moms be kinder if we were a little more appreciative at home. He says, tell them to be submissive to their own husbands. This is everybody's favorite verse. Train the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. And I have done enough premarital counseling to know how we push back against this. I think that's because we don't understand what Paul is saying here, what it means, especially in our culture. He doesn't say, tell them to be submissive to every man. It's not about inferiority. It's not about lack of gifts or abilities in any way. My spiritual leadership in our home is not me dominating my wife. In fact, to be honest, I lose about 90% of the arguments that Ruthie and I have. What it means is she defers to me. She respects me. It's the idea that a marriage is like the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. As Jesus submitted himself to the Father, so wives submit themselves to the husbands. And husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself and sacrificed for her, putting her needs ahead of himself, putting her wants ahead of himself, deferring to her in so many ways, it's a picture of Christ. I really appreciate how Kathy Keller Tim Keller's wife, pastor up in New York City, explains it in her marriage, quote. She said, it means that in matters of disagreement, at least in our marriage, I yield to Tim the deciding vote. He felt called to New York City. I did not. We had to make a decision. To not make a decision functionally would be to make one. He told me, okay, if you don't want to go, we won't go. Kathy said, I told him, oh, no, you don't. You're not putting that on me. You've got to make it and bear the responsibility. That's how she's trying to reenact the gospel in her home. He says, so that the word of God is not reviled. T- Tim Chester, in one of his books, says, A husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say, How disgusting and archaic. A lot of people who are turned off by the Christian teaching about headship in marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages they see. There's this beautiful mutual thing going on in the marriage. And then he speaks to a young man. And what is so interesting, he's got all these things to say about older men and older women and younger women. He says one thing to the young men, self-control. In other words, that pretty well sums it up. If you do that, young guys, you're doing well. And he says, urge them. Keep urging them. Why? Because you lose it here. You lose it, period. It's a big deal. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. It doesn't matter the size of your army. It doesn't matter the, the brilliance of the leaders in your community. If there are no walls, you're totally vulnerable. And guys, your enemy knows how he can get to you. He just comes knocking if there's not self-control. Have you noticed how often self-control is mentioned? Older men, younger women, younger men, control of our temper, control of our tongue, control of our appetite, control of our sexual desires, and nobody drifts into self-control. Nobody coasts into it. We're all challenged by this. The Bible understands this. I think that's why one of the most famous passages about self-control It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. 
We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So some people think self-control is not all that important. He says, there's a reward in view. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Guys, if we get this, if we can learn to control our passions, our desires, we can be someone that God will work mightily in. D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally sold out to him. I think we need a, self, I think we need a revival of self-control. Crete was a corrupt culture, just like ours. Paul says, no, 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 and you're no different. So young guys, work on this. And you get to the point you say, is that even possible? John Stott in his commentary on these, on these texts says, self and he was a single man all his life, self-mastery is possible. There's no use in exhorting them to something that is impossible. How is it possible? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When we cry out to God for his help, it's the only way. Admit my weakness, call out to him. And in the grace of God, it is possible, not in my strength, but in his. Then he moves to leaders. He says, Titus, you show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He says, Titus, you be a model for this. Let them see your life as well as your teaching. Be an example in your deeds and your words. Be a person of dignity. When you teach, let there be weightiness in what you say. And then he turns to the last group. He turns to slaves. And that conjures up in our mind pictures of colonial America and all the slave ships coming over racial slavery. Paul speaks against that. 1 Timothy 1.10, slave traitors to wretched sin. In the Bible, slavery was somewhat different. It was not racially based. It was debt-induced. It involved all ages, all colors, all, all races. It was miserable at times, but slaves could and did hold high government offices. Slaves were doctors and lawyers and business people, and yet they were still owned by someone. And in those churches, as those slaves heard the freeing, emancipating gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of Christ, they're sitting right beside their masters, and some begin to take advantage of that, begin to be argumentative, begin to steal from their masters. And so he says, bond servants, or literally do lost slaves, you're to be submissive to your own masters in everything. Be well-pleasing, literally try to please, some people you just can't please, not argumentative, not pilfering, or, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And I think perhaps the best contemporary application of this would be employees. Not that we're slaves, but there is, there's a corresponding truth there. He says our work, the way that we work our jobs, should display our love for the Lord, and our hope in, in Jesus. When we go to work tomorrow, he says there are at least four attitudes that we ought to take with us that demonstrate what Christ has done in our life, demonstrate the gospel. Integrity, excellence, servanthood, and hope. Integrity, don't steal. 
You want to honor the Lord. You want to be trustworthy. Excellence, not doing just the minimum required just to get by. No, I want to bless my employer. I want to bless the business in which I work. I want to be productive. Question. Anybody here just doing the minimum you can to get by? The way you deal with a bad job, a bad employer, is you transfer masters. Now you see yourself as serving, working for Jesus, not just my employer. Servanthood, not argumentative and hope, which means my work does not define me. My identity is not bound up in my work. Apart from the Lord, that is your identity. I'm defined not by a position on, a, on an org chart. I am defined by what God says about me. So why is all of this so important? Did you catch three different times? He says, so that the word of God might not be maligned, so that the word of God might not be reviled, so that you might adorn the gospel of God. Here's my short answer. Godly living makes the gospel credible and attractive. We're talking about a healthy church, not just so that we'll be healthy, but for the sake of our, our witness to a world that is dark and desperately needs hope. Three pur purpose clauses in this, so that, so that, so that. It all has to do with, with our witness. And he uses that word so that you can adorn the gospel. It's the word we get our word cosmetics from. Make it attractive. Your life, he says, should add luster to your speech about the gospel. It's like taking a jewel and putting it in the proper setting so that it stands out. He says, make sure your life is a good setting for the jewel of the gospel. At home, what does your marriage say about the gospel? Healthy, godly marriage. You make friends in the neighborhood. There may likely be an opportunity or a question that's asked, and you need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. How about ministry? Those of us who are involved in ministry. The gospel is a stumbling block, but we ought not to be the stumbling block. People ought not to turn from the gospel because of us. They ought not to stumble over the messenger. And he speaks of work, that our productivity and our character and our trustworthiness commends the gospel. People don't hear what we say. They watch what we do, and that is an unnerving thought. A friend once told me, he said, Sam, we're called to be models, but not models of perfection. We're called to be models of growth. It's unrealistic to expect perfection. And one final word. Did you notice how normal these things, relationships are? How, how mundane it's just ordinary life. Sometimes we think the greatest thing you can do as a Christian is, is to give your life as a servant of the Lord on a mission field somewhere, and that is a great thing to do. But it could very well be that what the Lord seeks from us in terms of sacrifice and service is just day by day letting my life reflect that my belief has gone through me. It's affected my behavior. It affects my words. It affects the way that I think, the way that I see things. And it draws people to the gospel, to Jesus in me. Well, that's enough for today. Let's pray together. Lord, would you make us these kinds of people, those of us like myself who are older, 
Would you help us to be worthy of respect? Thank you for the men and women, older folks in this church who work and labor, whose lives display a grace that only you could produce. Thank you for that. Thank you for the moms here who serve their families, feel the weight of it, often very tired. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for the investment they are making in children that is a payoff only to be seen in eternity. Thank you for the younger men and the younger women in this church, many who stood up a few moments ago. And you are preparing them now, not only to be used now to serve you, but you are preparing for something they can't see, but to be those who adorn the gospel with their lives. Lord, thank you. Would you bless everyone who stood up in every different age group? May we have lives that are godly without apology, centered upon Jesus, centered upon the gospel. Thank you for the work that you are doing, making us a healthy church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So worship team, if you would, come on up. And while they're coming, let's go ahead and stand as we prepare to sing.